find my notes. And I went, oh, and I dug through my bag and found them. Nothing like the Lord shaking you right before you preach. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Uh, Matt, take me down a little bit. Father in heaven, this is, uh, this is your desk. This is your word. These are your children. And, and I am your servant, Lord. You have been gracious to me, O oh Lord. You have shown me wonderful things. Help me to speak these things to your people. Help me to be clear and to make it plain. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and lives. Father, open their ears that they might hear. Open their eyes that they might see. Give them hearts that are tender towards you, Father, and turn them to follow you in this way. Speak to us all, Father, about how we fall short. Help us to see it clearly. Move us to confess and forsake it, Father. We are not there yet. We need your work in our heart and life. We need your grace. We need you to fulfill that promise that says that you will not begin a work and not complete it, Lord. You complete all your works. And those things that are promised that are not here yet, Father, certainly will be. I pray that you would strengthen me and that your spirit would prevail in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in July of 2018, a pastor allowed me to preach a series of messages on stewardship, specifically focused on finances, but stewardship is a really broad concept in scripture, and I started out with um, a message that asks fundamental questions, and I'm kind of going back to some of that today, and I want to show you what it looks like in the scriptures, so that you see this, and I I guess I'm going to propose one more fundamental question, uh, although part of this is there also. The first question actually Steve Vellante preached was about which kingdom and which king do you follow? Because there's two kingdoms um, and there's two kings. And one specific verse says, no man can serve two masters for he he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and in that particular case, mammon. But we can we can put different kings in the place of the second king. It could be my job. It could be my notoriety. It could be my own dreams and aspirations. Um, Christ is our king. And we need to follow him. And I asked in that sermon, who or what is your ruler? And who or what provides your security? Because if you go through that passage, it ends up with, Um, not being concerned about what you put on or what you eat or the cares of the world because God provides for you. And I asked the question, you need to decide whether whether or not you're the master or you're the servant. That's a fundamental question in the Christian life. 
And are you the owner or are you the steward of the owner? Some of you will remember this. And then I went and looked at John chapter 10, and we'll be taking a look at that passage again today. And it was talking about the shepherd and the sheep. And I asked you a question, are you one of his sheep? Or are you not of his sheep? Because that's what the passage talks about. And then out of the Great Commission passage, um, are you just a believer, someone who has come to faith and assented to Christ, or are you actually his disciple? And there's a difference between those two, and we're going to talk about those two last questions. Now I found this passage, you can open with me, we're going to go a lot of places, so get ready to flip around your Bible. I'm not necessarily going to wait for you, Roman, it is five of, 30 minutes from now, tell me I'm 30 minutes in so that I don't go an hour and a half, (laughs) all right, and I'm trying to be done in 40 minutes, okay, I really want you to call out. So John chapter 14, if I can find it. John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled, familiar passage. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is Jesus talking. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Right, We love, that's a wonderful promise that we hope for, that we pray for, that we love. And then he says this, and where I go, you know. And the way you know. We kind of pass over that because what Thomas says next, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And he said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except by me. Now, Jesus never lied, right? I mean, he's totally sinless. He never lied. And I found this passage as I was looking through things after I had prepared my main message, and I went, huh, we know the way. And specifically, the disciples knew the way, they just didn't recognize it. So let's start there. And if we're going to look back and think about this from their perspective, we're going to go back into the Old Testament. So I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a very, very important passage to Israel. And we're going to hear something here that Christ said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the other is like like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang all of the law and all of the prophets. This is the foundation of what Israel believes. And actually, we'll start in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. In Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. 
right? They pray that twice a day. Jews today still pray that twice a day. It is, it is a commitment. And it's a commitment that really focuses on the next verse, and I'm just going to touch on it because I'm sure that Roman's going to flesh it out in his next series. Is You shall love. It's a command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that's the fundamental command. All of what we do here is really about that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the Greek says that you'll, you'll love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because the Greek words don't dovetail directly, right? So the concept of the heart in, in Hebrew, and hopefully, Roman, you find more about this. It's the seat of the intellect, the mind, or the rational part of, of man. In, in Greek, it's the seat of the mind, the will, the emotions, all the, the immaterial faculties. Hebrew soul is the total person and responsibility. It's the, it is all the immaterial and the material together. And then the strength is literally in your muchness. It's the physical side of our life with all of its functions, all of its capabilities, all of its strength in the world. So think beyond my gifts and my talent, my abilities, my capabilities, and what, all is, what God has blessed me with. All of my job, all of my money, all of my house, everything that's within my power is my strength. My family even. So we're supposed to love the Lord our God. And the Greek uses the word agape there, which is an entirely giving, devoted love that gives all for its target, like Christ gave all on the cross to redeem us. So we give all because we love God. All of our minds, all, all of our hearts, all of our soul and all of our strength, everything in our life. That's the call of discipleship. That's a little bit more than most of us think about. And the next is where it starts talking about discipleship because the way of Jewish life is a way of discipleship. And they knew this. They lived this. They still had the temple so the next one, verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So in your mind, in your will, in your emotions. You're supposed to take the word from here and put it inside here. And that's kind of hard when you don't know the Lord because you have a stony heart. Right? Right? Nothing wants to go in. But that was, that was what we were commanded to do. And that's individual discipleship. That's, that in their life, they would go and study the Scriptures. And they would rehearse the Scriptures. And you know what? They didn't have it in their home. I mean, later generations had something in the synagogue and they had teachers. But they'd go to the temple and the priests would read to them while they stood up all day long listening to it. 
And then catch a snippet and go home and rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And they would memorize it. In fact, the Pharisees memorized large portions of the Old Testament. All of them. And were able to draw teachings and show things, right? That's individual discipleship. How does that represent you in your life? What are you doing with the Word every day? I mean, they pray this twice a day. I'm asking just once. Spend a time in Scripture daily. You hide it in your heart so that when you step away from your Bible, you still have it with you. And you think about, oh, why did he, why did he switch from, you will look on me who you pierce to you will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Why did he do that in the verse? Have you ever thought through some of the scriptures and go, why did this Holy Spirit use that word there? What's he trying to tell me? So there's individual discipleship that we're accountable to. And then the next verse, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So let's take them first thing in the morning when you rise up. Right? When you, the next one, when you lie down, right, right when you go to bed. And they lived in like one room things. Everybody went to bed at the same time pretty much. Because one person up keeps the whole family up and it's an agrarian society. And they, they go to sleep at the sundown and wake up at the sunrise. Right? You talk of them. When you lie down, you speak of them when you rise up, last thing of the day, first thing of the day. You, you talk about them when you're sitting in your house and when you walk by the way. So when you're sitting in your house and relaxing, when you're getting up and walking to the field to do the work, while you're in the field doing the work, that's kind of like your whole day. You're talking about the Word. That's just what we do, Right? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And the Pharisees went to a really literal place where they would put it in a leather box and have things on the arm, and they would put it on their hand, and they would tie another box to their head. And, you know, hats off to them for being really literal. But I think it really was supposed to be a mark on my hand, right? That the Word, I would be so much in the Word that when I looked at my hand, my hand would remember I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And I need to be doing what He told me to do. The way He told me to do it. And all of my thoughts and the way that I view the world should come through the lens of His Word. Everything I think should pass through this grid of His Word and say, no, 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 it's not evolution. That doesn't work with what the Bible says. Or pick another subject. No, 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 that baby in your womb is a unique DNA signature. It is not your body. It is a unique human being. And it's not like getting your appendix cut out. Those are just a couple examples. 
Right? Everything that we do should be marked by His Word. Everything that we think should pass through the grid of His Word. The way that we look at His Word, world should be like, as Ken Ham said, through Bible glasses. And we see the depravity in the world. And we see the world ripe for judgment. But God sees the world through compassion and love and mercy and grace. Don't you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God is good towards the world so that they will repent. And we talked a little about this this morning. Sometimes the word just hardens somebody's heart and dulls their eyes and dulls their hearing. Just like when we were kids and mom said that again to us and we didn't want to hear it and it became Charlie Brown. I used that example in Sunday school. You know, wah, 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 wah. Does the scripture sound like that to you? That's a problem. And then it goes further. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. So think about how the inside of your house is decorated. What do you hold up in front of your eyes? Is it the words of Scripture or something that reminds you of Scripture? Everything about this is everywhere you go, you should be reminded of God's Word. Every aspect of your life. And by the way, you can't be a covert scripture because, Christian because of the scripture. Because the doorposts, that's talking about the outside of the house. Where they struck the blood of the lamb from Passover. Write it on the doorposts of your house. Your neighbors should really know that you're a Christian. And you can be literal, you know, put up a flag. I love Jesus, whatever. But they should see it here on my hand. They should hear it here in my voice, right? They should know that you're scripture, that you're a Christian, and when they talk to you, they should hear scripture come out. That's part of the way. No, oh, I'm sorry, this is the Jewish way. That's not for us, right? This is law, and we live in grace, so that has nothing to do with us today. Incidentally, he told us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. He also, in Deuteronomy itself, told us to search after him with all of our heart and soul, to fear, to walk in his ways, to love and to serve him with all of our heart and soul, that that false prophets were specifically a test that we love him with all of our heart and soul. So Joel Olstein is a, te- a test for you, whether you love him with all your heart and soul. And we're to observe his commandments with all of our heart and soul. We're to obey his voice with all his heart, all of our heart and all of our soul. We're to love him again two more times with all of our heart and all of our soul. And we're supposed to turn to him with all of our heart and all of our soul. That's about repentance. That's a lot of different ways of saying the same thing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ten times he repeated it in a single book. I guess it means something. I wonder what that is. 
And not only that, but there's this whole culture that the Jewish people had, right? They had the temple sacrifices. They had Passover. They literally saw the whole picture of the Hashem, the sin offering, every year. And they celebrated it. And if you understand all the depth of, of the Passover sermon, uh, display and, and ritual, and I hope Richard Flashman comes and does that for us, that's like the commu- that is the communion service that we do monthly, except we only do like a focused part of it. And they had prophets and priests. They had all the other feasts that all are other representations of Christ. And you know King David, the man after God's own heart? Turn with me to Psalm 119. This is really, really cool. King David, who really loved God. And yes, he was a sinner at times and he, he broke commandments and God restored him. But he wrote Psalm 119. It is the middle book of the Bible. It's 176 verses. Every stanza of this song is a Hebrew letter. It starts with a Hebrew letter. It's the Aleph-Bet song. Alphabet, you know, sounds pretty similar. Aleph is the first letter, Bet is the second letter. And this, I believe he wrote this to teach his children the Hebrew alphabet. I'm just going to read a little bit more than a standard. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquities. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently, with all our strength, literally. Oh, that my ways were directed or established to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I looked at all of your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a man, second stanza, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking, taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. 176 verses, 145-ish of them either mention your word, your testimonies, your precepts, your commandments, your judgments. But that's the Aleph Bet song. I wonder what David was trying to get across to them. Right? And when it said teach, you know, we think in English, right? So it says... It says, teach your children diligently, right? To teach is to speak it, to declare it to them. But diligently, you'll love this, has the sense of a whetstone that you take your children and rub them against the word over and over and over and over again to sharpen the edge. So mom and dad, it's not a one-time thing. It's, oh, it's like when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And everything that you do that they see, they go, oh, dad's living, he's, he's returning the money that they gave, they gave him too much back. He's going back to the store to return it to them because it's not his. And he feels that it's going to be stealing if he keeps it. That's 
People don't do that. And then Solomon, Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. It talks all about the wise men and the foolish men and all of that. Solomon was just like his dad in a lot of regards. And in other ways, not so much. So here is, Jesus said, you know the way. Honestly, I think there it is, right? Now turn with me to Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41. His parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. It was a ritual in their house. Look, they were living the way. So Jesus was the very disciple that he called us to be as a learner. And then in verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and Mary didn't know it because they were in a big band, a big company going back up to, uh, to Galilee. But supposing that he had been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought. And when they got there, they started saying, hey, I haven't seen Jesus since we left Jerusalem. It's, it's eight hours later. Where is he? Now, moms and dads, you know how, how that feeling of terror comes into your into your heart and mind when you realize that you're eight hours away from him, right? And I can't find him. So, they sought him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they went house to house, or, you know, camel to camel, however they were traveling, they returned to Jerusalem, so eight hours back to Jerusalem, probably, seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, now, where would your hearts and minds be, moms, that your 12-year-old son you haven't seen for three days? Okay? Three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, Right? So all the rabbis are around him. And he's both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished. They were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So when his parents saw him, they were amazed. My little 12-year-old is stumping the doctors of the law and asking them difficult questions. What's this that I see about God's servant in Isaiah 53? That people are supposed... He's going to die. And people are going to offer his soul as they're a Shem. What, what does that have to do? That's a human sacrifice. Can you imagine the questions he might have asked the Pharisees at 12 years old? But, you know, that's like all of us, right? At 12 years old, we got the doctrine down. We know how to talk to the, to the professors in the seminary. 
Then an amazing thing. And his mother said to him, just like only a mother can say, Son, why have you done this to us? Did you not know? And his response, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But you're... No, that's not, his, that's not that's my stepdad. Right? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth. And what's the next phrase? He was subject to them. And his mother kept all these things in his heart. That is, he ordered his life under the authority of his parents. He did what they said. He learned what they wanted to learn. He's sinless, so I'm sure that they had arguments, but he was never sinful towards them. He was the disciple. That's what we're supposed to be, like that, following the way that he was taught. And how much meditation on the scriptures would it take for a 12-year-old to stump the doctors of the law in the temple? Now realize, I know he is God the Son. His divine being is from all eternity. But his humanity grew and learned and was subject to, and hungered. So the human side of him was trained up in the Word. And he might have, I'm I'm, I'm sure that he has had much advantage over us because we are sinful. And he was not, or is not, yet. And then he was discipled also by his father. I'll just read these. John 5, 20. Father, he shows him all things that he himself does. So his heavenly father discipled him. John fifteen fifteen. All things that I heard from my father, he told his disciples, I have made known to you. So all of his message came from his father. John 17, when he's praying the high priestly prayer... Father, he starts out, and he comes to this. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. So he did the work that he was handed and commanded to do. And literally, right after this, he goes to Calvary to be the sacrifice. And in Hebrews 5.8, the, the phrase that always get, gets me, he learned obedience by the things what he, that he suffered. And there it is. Jesus learned obedience. By the things he suffered. And then John 10. Let's get to John 10. Because i I got to move quickly at this point. John 10. Most assuredly I say to you, he, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. And he's talking about the Pharisees here. But he who enters the door by the sheep is, by, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. He's an authenticated, authorized shepherd. He has sheep in the sheepfold. The the doorkeeper doesn't open for the wrong person. And the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And when he brings out his sheep, he goes before them. 
And the sheep, what's that word? Follow him. And, they, and for they know his voice. So there's this intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. He comes in and he goes, hey, Sneezy. You know where I'm going, right? Come here, Sneezy. Time to go. And they come up. They come. They come to the they, they recognize his voice. They, they know that person. They know that that's the person that feeds me. That's the person that killed that wolf that was trying to take me down. That's the person that leads me to water. That leads me behind, beside still waters, right? Leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you know his voice? Do you hear his voice? And I'm not talking literally. We have one tool for hearing his voice. He is the door later. He is the shepherd. This, he brings them out of the sheepfold and he walks and follows. And down in verse 25, he's talking to the Pharisees. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness to me because they just asked him of sign. And he tells them what the signs are that he already gave them. But you do not believe. And he gives it a because here. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Notice he doesn't say, you are not of my sheep because you don't believe. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. In Matthew, I think it's 7, it's in the bulletin. It says, depart from me, you, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness of the false prophets. He doesn't know certain groups, and he knows certain groups. His sheep, he knows. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They continue to walk with him wherever he walks. What happens if the, the, the master walks out the door, and the sheep aren't following? They get lost, right? If they're so focused on that grass of, uh, uh, that they're eating, and they're eating the next blade and the next blade, they can go over here and they're not near their shepherd, whatever, and they can fall on the cliff, or what, worse, literally, they can fall in a ditch on their back and they can't make themselves right again. They can't get upright. And the shepherd needs to come over and tip them over and pick them up so that they can be on their feet again. So if you're not following the shepherd, you're lost. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I have this close relationship and they follow me. They go along with me. They hear my voice and they know, oh, that's the shepherd. He's calling me. Are you following him? Now we're not going to look at this, but you know what? Over and over and over in the Gospels, I can read it to you because I have it printed out here. Somewhere. Anyway, when he met Simon and Andrew, Peter, right? He said, follow me. What did they do? They were, they were with their fishing nets. 
They left their stuff and they followed him. James and John were cleaning their nets with their father Zebedee. Follow me. What did they do? They dropped their stuff and went. Jesus comes up to Matthew or Levi, depending on which gospel you're reading. He's at the tax table. He's a tax collector. Follow me. What did he do? Closed shop for the day, actually forever, and followed him. Is that the way we approach Christ? I'm going to leave behind my livelihood and follow him. Now, special time, special place, back in the Gospels, okay. But there's still a follow him that is appropriate to our lives. Right before he went to Calvary, he's, in the Pas- he's, he's doing the Passover Seder with them. And he puts aside his robes, he girds on a towel, he picks up a basin, and he gets down on the floor and he washes their feet. And he says, I'm I'm your master and your Lord, and you call me this, and and it's right for you to call me this. I am doing something to show you that you are not greater than your master, you are not greater than your Lord, but you should bow down as a servant and serve one another. And do this to one another. And then later he gives them a new commandment. You know those two commandments on all of what the, the prophets and the law hang? He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. That you agape one another. And just to be clear, as I agape you, you agape one another. So think about how he loved us. And that's how you're supposed to love one another. Pouring out all of your life for one another. And then in Matthew, actually in Luke, the end of Luke, he makes an interesting statement. See if I can remember it. Ah, here it is. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And a very intriguing comment by Luke. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So there's a, an understanding that we don't have unless he gives us that understanding. And comprehension It's kind of like I see all the pieces and how they come together and I can finally see the picture. Kind of like the picture of the way that I'm painting for you. But the the meaning of the term is that it has implications for my life and because of those implications, my life changes. What I see, what I think, what I do, where I go is different because I have comprehended the picture. Very Hebraic. The Greeks think about gaining knowledge and putting it in your head. And once you had it in your head, you knew it. But the Hebrews, you don't know it until you're doing it. And we serve a Jewish Messiah. He wants you to do it. And then he, in a very similar fashion, with different words in Matthew, he says... Go ye into all the world and make disciples. That's 
the main verb, make disciples. Lead people to love me so much that, and believe in me as the Jewish Messiah that they submit to baptism because the next the first participle after having gone, like you're already there, is to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the last, so we are to, we are to talk to people, to rub them against God's way and His Word, so that they go, I believe that He is who He says He is. And I will, I will be baptized to identify with Him. And then we're supposed to teach them All things, whatever He has commanded us. So everything that we have received from the person who taught us, we're supposed to teach to the next. So parents, right in the Old Testament, the whole discipleship of children is your responsibility. Now the church helps in this, but it's your responsibility. You need to disciple your children. Now we have a school That's a help. We partner with you to help. But it's not the school's responsibility to make your children disciples of the Lord. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. That means you're going to have to help them with homework. That means you're going to have to speak all of this word into their lives and rub them against the word that they believe and want to be baptized. And not just be baptized, but to follow. And it also means that we have a church need, need to take what we've been given. You know, how did it get to us? Because it was Jesus and the twelve and one fell away. And he rose up um, Paul, right? And Paul started churches. But we don't talk to Paul. We don't talk directly to Jesus, even though we have all of the, the writings we're like miles down the road of, of this, I'm going to hand you all this truth. And somebody spoke to you the gospel. And God used that as an aha moment of, in your life when He breathed life into you and you were regenerated and you went, oh, I get it. He's the Messiah. I need to follow Him. But it doesn't stop there. You're to make disciples. Your children, your neighbors, your workmates, the people outside of this door, the Jewish people. We need to show them their Messiah. We need to be so much lovers of God that they look at our lives and our relationship with God, their Yahweh, that they go, that's not right. And are filled with jealousy. That they will start coming at us. And the ones who come at us, the worst, are actually the ones that are the most right for him to pull out. So when Pentecost happened, all of those disciples, what does it say? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And a couple verses later in Acts chapter 2. So they continued daily with one mind, one accord, one mindset in the temple and the breaking of bread from house to house and ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor, ooh, and having favor with all people. 
Hmm. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now that's, he's speaking about the Jewish Messiah in the Jewish culture and there's a whole footprint that they already had an understanding that our culture does not have anymore. We have a different task, but to the Jewish people, we can speak their language. Well, not the Hebrew part so much, but we can speak from the scriptures. And then it kind of gets cinched in Paul when Paul writes at the end of his life to Timothy, his son in the faith, right? Because Paul went and started the church and then he'd move on and as we were hearing from Roman, Corinth had problems. Timothy, you need to go to Corinth. And Timothy brought the letter and Timothy's watching as he's reading it and Timothy's going, wow, things are really messed up here. Right? And Timothy helped set them right. And they still end up falling away like a hundred years ago after that. But Paul tells Timothy, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, not the one-off thing that I said when I had a headache that day, right? The things that you hear over and over and over and over again. Not the weird little thing that I found in the corner of the scripture that everybody wants to talk about and the scripture isn't clear about it, but the gospel, right? The fact that there's a savior and a Shem, somebody who paid the debt of our sins and can wash us and satisfy God's justice. The things that you heard from me among many witnesses, you hear me saying over and over from congregation to congregation, commit, give them in keeping these things to faithful men, and what's it say? Who will be able to teach others? And that's the path. We're at the end of the chain. We're like this, holding on to somebody. You know, our place is Roman. We're holding on to Roman as our teacher. Who's here? That's ultimately the question. Who are you discipling? Because it's a chain. You can't do only half of it. Now if all of our culture, and our culture is in this situation, when the culture drops below two people, two children per family, the culture is contracting. If the culture norm average drops down to like 1.4 children per family and it persists for a long time within a hundred years that culture is going to die there will be no more of that culture because people die and they don't replace so our culture of this church needs to have babies needs to have new believers if we don't we will die it's that simple. We need to reach out. We need to be not going our own way. You know, that verse in, in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone our own way. We have turned, or have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Psalm 14.3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, not, no, not one. We can still be that person, even though we're saved. 
I mean, the, the Pharisees knew a lot of the law, but they went their own way. They were more concerned about the rules that they put around God's word than God's word. And some of the rules that they put around God's word led people to violate God's word. And there it is. You have, you have to follow. You have to hear his voice. You have to go his way, not your way. And that's the next question. Are you going his way? Or are you going your own way? Now when Joshua, when Moses gave the law, he, he said that they should set up a monument on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And between these two mountains is Shechem, where Abraham lived, and where Sarah is buried, I believe. And they put on Mount Gerizim a copy of the law, and they put a copy of the law on Mount Ebal. And the people stood in Shechem and looked up at the two mountains. And Mount Gerizim, from your perspective, would be over here on your left, and Mount Ebal was on the right. And from God's perspective, Mount Gerizim was on his right hand, and Mount Ebal was on his left hand. And Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessings, and Mount Ebal was the Mount of Cursings. So visually, he put before the people Here are blessings and cursings. And the obvious visual picture is, I can only stand on one mountain at a time. Which mountain are you standing on? The Mount of Blessings or the Mount of Cursings? Now when Israel was on the Mount of Cursings, God brought the rod of Assyria against them. And when Judah was on the Mount of Cursings, because of the Valley of Hinnom, among other things, and all the idols in the temple, he brought the rod of Babylon on them. And Judah went into Babylon for 70 years. And many went by the way of the sword and the famine and pestilence. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be over on this mountain. And Joshua said to them, choose you this day which way you will go. Who, which gods are going to serve? The gods that you knew on the other side of the river that your fathers knew? Or the Lord? What are you going to do? I'll pick it up after. Thank you, Brother Doug. Um, before we close this morning, I just wanted to kind of give you a quick update of where we're going as a church. And I want to preface this by saying um, 